will be there this morning. We are continuing our series on pathways of grace, walking with God along pathways of grace, and this will be the last message on prayer. In the past couple messages, we've talked about learning from the masters about prayer. We looked at the life of Paul or his prayer life. We looked at Daniel. And this morning we are going to look at the master, Jesus. Amen. And his uh, prayer, his most lengthy recorded prayer in Scripture. And it's a wonderful thing that we can come and learn from the Lord. We have this example of prayer for us. And I believe the Lord wants to teach us and change our lives as a result. So let's go to Him in prayer as we prepare to hear His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for prayer, the blessing of prayer. We thank You, Jesus, for Your prayers. Lord, even at this moment, You are interceding for us. And You have interceded and Your prayers are always answered. So we thank You for that. And we ask You, Lord, now that we would experience Your truth by the power of Your Spirit in and through Your Word, Lord, in a life-changing way. Teach us to pray. Teach us about prayer. Teach us about Yourself, Lord. Do the miraculous. Come to limited, sinful human beings and manifest Your glory. Speak to us. We thank You, Lord. You're so good. Week after week, You're with us. We love You. And we look forward to what You're going to do. Lead us in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can follow along with me. I'll be in chapter 17. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Jesus' high priestly prayer. This prayer was given um, in the upper room, apparently, before Jesus left and went across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Certainly we have an example of His prayer there as well. But this is a prayer offered kind of at the climax of the work of the Gospel. And so it's just full of wonderful truth. So let's listen. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours 
are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them, even as You loved Me. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. John 17, 1-26. The high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now we've looked at the prayers of Paul and Daniel. Those have been wonderful examples of prayer. The Scriptures are actually chock full of examples of prayer. There's a whole book given to prayer in the Bible. Does anyone know what that book is? The Psalms, more or less, are prayer, public prayer and private prayer. It's a book on prayer, so there's a lot on prayer we can look at, and we've actually we took a, some time uh, a couple of years ago to look at the Psalms and the prayers of the Psalms. But this prayer is a unique one in the Bible. Nowhere else do we have the prayer of God the Son as extensive as we do here and as significant. So this prayer is unique. This is a unique prayer in the Scriptures. It's unique in many ways. It's unique in its beauty. And when I say that, I mean that it's a prayer that gives us a glimpse of the beauty of the relationship between the Father and the Son. This prayer is a glimpse into the relationship that Jesus has with the Father and the Father has with Him. When you listen to someone pray, you hear their heart as they pray. 
And so we have the holy, unique privilege in John 17 of seeing the heart of Jesus and seeing His relationship with the Father. And so you find in this prayer just some wonderful things going on. The Son asking that the Father would be glorified. Longing for the Father to be glorified. And yet, the Son Himself knowing that He is to be glorified as well and that they are to share in this glory. We have a picture of this eternal relationship of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sharing in their glory together, glorying in each other. And that's what we see in this prayer. We see the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. The unity of the Father and the Son. They are one. There's one God. Three persons. They are one together. Perfectly agreed. Perfectly united. Perfectly delighting. Full of joy. We see that here. We see also a little bit, a little bit of a hint of the grand plan of redemption. Jesus is talking about the Father giving Him the ones that were His before time began. So we have in prayer Jesus talking to the Father about His people and His people are an integral part of the glory of God and the love of God. They're not to be divided. We'll see that a little bit as we go through the prayer. And we see Jesus talking about these people. Father, they were Yours before time began. You set Your heart on these people and You have given them to Me and they're Mine. And I have done My work in order that they could be fully Yours. There's this exchange of God's people, this love of God's people, this working together, this cooperative work of redemption being spoken of. And, and we could spend hours maybe just talking about those things. It's a unique prayer for the beauty of the Trinity portrayed in it. It's also unique in its importance. Jesus is praying this prayer right before He goes across the valley to Gethsemane. Right before He turns Himself over to the authorities to be crucified to be tortured, to be humiliated on a cross, to bear the sins of His people, to die, to suffer and die, to bear the wrath of God, the worst thing there could ever be, the greatest calamity, the greatest tragedy, to experience the full force of God's holy justice. And so he prays this prayer right before. And he asks for God's purposes to be accomplished and God's people to be preserved. Thank God for this prayer in John 17. And the things that He asked and the things that God has answered because of this prayer. We know that the Father hears the Son. Unlike anyone else. Yes, He hears us in the Son, but He hears the Son unlike anyone else. Hebrews says, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Bill talks in communion about the perfect life. The Son earned the right to be heard by the Father. In a number of places, the Father says, this is My Son. With Him, I am well pleased. I delight in this One. Throughout His whole ministry, God the Father delighted in the Son. So when the Son came to the Father and said, Father, would You do these things? The Father gladly replied. So this prayer is unique in its importance because the Son has prayed for us. The Son has prayed for God's purposes. Could you imagine if we had the ear of Jennifer Gates? Does anyone know who Jennifer Gates is? Bill Gates' oldest child. 
Imagine if Jennifer Gates were a friend of ours and we had the ear of Jennifer Gates. What would you do? I, I'm, I might ask Jennifer if she could talk to her father about something. Maybe just if he could maybe donate like maybe like one-tenth of one percent of his profit to this church and God's purposes here. You know, just Jennifer, could you just ask him? I mean, it's one-tenth of one percent can't be much for Bill Gates. And, you know, and maybe, maybe you're thinking that or maybe you're thinking if I had her ear, I'd ask for a car or a home or something less spiritual. But, but imagine if we had the ear of the daughter of someone who had such resources. Well, we do have the ear of the Son. And the Son pleases the Father. And the Son goes to the Father on our behalf and prays for us. So this prayer is unique in its beauty. It's unique in its importance. And because of this prayer, and because of the prayer life of Jesus, we can pray. If Jesus had not done His work, if Jesus had not prayed like this, we'd not be able to pray. The bottom line to this message today is a simple statement is, because Jesus prayed, we pray. Because Jesus prayed, we pray. Because He prayed this prayer, because His people are preserved, because God's will is done, and responding to His Son, we can pray. We can pray confidently. And also we can pray wisely. For not only does this prayer stand important for us because it's His intercession on our behalf, and we can come confidently before God because of it. But it also is important to us because it gives us a picture of how to pray. The Son Himself praying to the Father. And there's lots we can learn from it. So let's jump into some of the aspects of this prayer that we can learn from. There's basically three things that Jesus prayed for, and we'll jump into the details as we go. One is Jesus prayed for God's glory. He prayed for His glory. And that's in the outline. You can follow along or take your own notes. Whatever serves you to remember God's Word. He prayed for God's glory. He prayed for God's people. And He prayed for God's mission. God's glory, God's people, God's mission. And some of you are probably tracking that for we, us as a church, those are the three purposes of our church and I believe the three biblical purposes of the church and the people of God. God's glory, God's people, God's mission. And I think in the notes, an easy way perhaps to remember that is worship, walk, and witness. Those are the three purposes of the church. This is how Jesus prays. He prays for God's glory, first off. We see that throughout this whole prayer. Jesus loves the Father. He loves the Father. And He wants to see the Father glorified. If you love God, if you know God and love Him, you will want to see Him glorified. And so Jesus in His prayer asks a number of times that the Father would glorify His name and He would glorify His name through the glory of the Son and through God's people. He prays for God's glory. And if we're to understand Jesus rightly, we must understand that not only did He pray for God's glory, but His entire life, all that He thought, all that He did, all that He desired was for the glory of the Father. That's what His life was about. He lived for the glory of the Father. He loved, lived to bring the Father glory. For to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to live for the glory of God. And so Jesus prayed for God's glory in this passage. Now, we use that term, living for God's glory, a lot. And, and I think we have to be careful because it can kind of become just you know, trite or kind of become you know, something that's said without grasping it. And if you're like me, 
I often struggle to I really understand what does it mean? What does this thing glory mean? You know, we don't go around talking about it a whole lot outside of church context, you know. You know, at work, you know, someone asks you, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this for the glory of the company. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? And we don't talk like that. But it's important for us to understand what the, the Word of God means when it talks about glory. The word glory, really, or, or the idea of glory, if something is glorious, we are saying it's significant. Glory is, is, is really the significance of something. How great, how massive, how... How big it is. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the word for glory is related to the word for weight or heaviness. If something's glorious, it's heavy. It makes me think of that phrase back in the 60s. You know, whoa, man, that's heavy. Ever heard that? I don't know if people say that nowadays. Um, it means, wow, that's deep. That's significant. That's meaningful. Wow, that's heavy. And it's really the same thing. The same, wow, that's glorious. That's what glory means. It has to do with the significance of something, and really everything in creation has significance. So there's a glory about everything in creation. And the wonderful thing about being a believer is you start to see that there's a God of glory behind the glory of creation. One of the wonders of being a believer is to have our perspective change, that we see the glory and we see the God that's behind it. Now the, every person, every human being sees the glory of creation. That's why people love to take hikes in the mountains and enjoy creation in different ways. Because everything in creation has glory. Water has a glory. The glory of water, the significance of water is, well, one is that it's wet. Water is wet. And there's cool things that come with that. But also, water has other aspects of glory. We can just take a simple thing like water and spend a whole morning talking about the glory of water. One of the things, another thing about water that's cool is it's not squishable. You can't squish water. It's not really compressible. If you squeeze it, it doesn't, it doesn't compress. And so water, because of that property, can carve rock, can carve gorges and rivers. It makes sand. It makes smooth stones. That's, that's water. There's other things about water that are glorious. It, it floats when it freezes. And we can go on and on. We, we, but the message is not about water this morning. It's about John 17. But there's glory in water. There's significance to it. And that's when the Scripture talks about significance and glory. They, uh, when it talks about glory, it's related to the weight, the significance. And the important thing to remember, too, is that behind each thing in creation is a God of glory. If we thought light bulbs were really cool, we thought, wow, isn't it wonderful? We would naturally think of the person who made the light bulb, which is, who, who, made the light, who invented the first light bulb? Thomas Edison, right? So we give credit to Thomas Edison. When you're a believer and you see the glory of water, you give credit to the Creator. God. God is the glorious one. So all of creation points to God and His glory. He is the most glorious one for all the glory of creation comes from His hand. And so the Son is right. Jesus is right to live and pray for the glory of God. And we recognize that, right? When we look at noble people who have lived noble lives, why do we think they're noble people? Why do we think they've lived noble lives? Because they've lived for a worthy cause, right? They've lived for a glorious cause. Mother Teresa, her life given to the poor. Soldiers and their lives given for the freedom of our country. Firemen, policemen, their lives given for our safety and security. 
moms. We're going to celebrate Mother's Day next weekend. Moms who give their lives for their families. We consider all those people to be noble and, and to be successful people. Why? Because they live for a glorious cause. Well, the most glorious cause, the most right, the most worthy, the most lovable, the most magnificent, the kindest, the most praiseworthy of all things is God Himself. And so the Son rightly lives for the glory of God. And we need to understand that. When we talk about living for the glory of God, when we talk about praying for the glory of God, we need to understand those truths behind it. The Son does that. It's the only right thing. And so He prays here in this prayer, Father, glorify Your name. Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. So we are to focus the same way. It's interesting in this prayer that Jesus ties the glory of the Father to the people of God. The glory of the Father to the people of God. And that's another aspect that's so important for us to to not detach living for God's glory from God's people. We can think we're living for God's glory, but if we're not following His purposes for His people, we're not living for His glory. So the Son, when He prays in the very beginning, He says it later on as well, it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since or as you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So He says, Father, glorify your name as your Son glorifies you. And then He relates that to the giving of eternal life to His people. So the Father is glorified in the Son giving eternal life to His people. By the Son accomplishing redemption. By the Son rescuing you and me through our lives through working to purchase us and draw us to Himself through His death and resurrection. That's how God is glorified. And so the second thing He prays for is the good of God's people. He prays for God's people and much of this prayer is a prayer for God's people. And there's a lot to learn and the the passage is just so full of truths. I was reading recently that, that a number of very gifted Preachers spent like 42 messages on this chapter. We're trying to get it done in one. Uh, and there's just so much truth in here. We're not going to be able to do it justice. But, but even if you just listen to how Jesus speaks of God's people, we get a glimpse into how He views us and how we should view ourselves. Some of the things that He says, the way that He describes God's people, they are a unique people, special to Jesus and on the heart of God. They belong to the Father. Jesus says, yours they were. And what he means is from eternity past, from the beginning of the world, these people, God's people, were the fathers. We are here ultimately if we're believers because the Father set His affection on us and said, this one is mine. And in time, I'm going to work through my Son and then through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, to draw this one to myself. This one is mine. So the people of God belong to God. And they belong to the Son. They're the ones who are given eternal life. We are the ones who are given eternal life. And Jesus says, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we are the ones who have the amazing privilege of experiencing God. Knowing Him intimately. We're the ones who hear the words of Jesus and believe. We're the ones who believe that God sent the Son. There's various ways we're described. We're hated of the world. We're not of the world. Though we're in the world and we're sent to the world, we're not of the world. These are the ones that Jesus is praying for. God's people. You and me. And what does He pray? 
What are the things that he prays as he goes through here? As he describes the people of God to the Father and there's this wonderful interchange and there's so much to learn. One thing he prays for is that God would keep his people. He prays that God would keep his people. And the way he talks about it in the, in the passage is he says, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave the world. I'm, I'm no longer in the world, he says. Now he's still there. And a lot of the prayer is anticipating what's going to happen. So he says, Father, I've finished the work you gave me to do. Well, we know he hasn't finished it yet. He's anticipating the finishing the cross, the work on the cross, and his resurrection. And he says, I'm not in this world. So he's anticipating that soon he's not going to be around. And he says, Father, I've, while they were with me, I kept them. I protected them. I watched over them. I kept them from the evil one. I kept them from falling away, except for Judas, who was a false disciple. He kept them. And he says, Father, now I'm going. I'm leaving. Would you keep your people? Would you keep them? Would you keep them from the world? Would you keep them from the evil one? And then later on, he says, he prays for not only the immediate disciples, but he prays for all those who will come to know him through their word. That's you and me. So he has prayed that we be kept. Isn't that good news? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, ultimately, our confidence in our ability to remain in Christ does not fall on us. Yes, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we are to walk in the things of God. But ultimately, our ability to remain in Christ is not because we are better than someone else at it. It's because the Son has prayed, Father, keep this one. This one's my daughter. I love her. The Son has given His life for her. She's mine. Keep this one. Watch over this one. This one, this Son, is being tempted. He's being tempted by the enemy. He's being tempted by sin. But He's mine. Keep Him. It reminds me of His prayer for Peter. Peter denied Christ. And yet Jesus said to him, I've prayed for you. And afterwards, restore your brothers, I think is what it talks about. So afterwards, care for your brothers after you're restored. So Jesus knew that he was going to fall away, that Peter was going to fall into temptation and deny the name of Christ. Peter denied Christ. He walked away from Christ. That's what that means. He, he denied Christ. He walked away. And yet because the Son had prayed that God would keep Peter, Peter was kept. That should be wonderful encouragement. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've wondered and I've worried, am I going to stay true? Is there going to be a trial or temptation that is just too big and I give in and I walk away? I can remember as a young believer struggling and thinking, had I committed that unpardonable sin? You know, in Scripture it talks about the unpardonable sin. Anyone ever worry that they committed the unpardonable sin and yeah, I mean, I think most believers at some point in their life, at least I did, I thought I had committed that unpardonable sin. Some good news on that. We, it's another teaching, but if, you've, if you're worrying about committing the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed it, okay? Because once you commit the unpardonable sin, you don't care about whether you committed it or not. So if you're worried, that's a good thing. Anyhow, your ability to not commit the unpardonable sin and to stay in Jesus is ultimately because the Son of God has prayed for you. And you are kept in Him. And so your encouragement should come from the fact that he has prayed, Father, keep this one, and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. So he prayed for that. He also prayed that we would be sanctified. The next thing. 
He prayed that we would be sanctified. He says, God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the context where he prays that is he's talking about that his disciples and us are in the world. He said, these ones are in the world. They live in the world. And how does he describe the world in this prayer? And how is it described throughout Scripture? The world is a place that hates Jesus and hates those who belong to Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that the world hates you to the uttermost. It doesn't mean that every day when you go outside and go to work, your workmates hate you with the worst hatred possible. And that whenever you encounter anybody who doesn't know Christ, they're just full of rage to you. That's not what that means. It, what, what it means is the fundamental disposition of the world is in opposition to the fundamental disposition of God's people. The world fundamentally is not interested in glorifying God. The world wants man to be glorified. The world wants the, the world and creation on their own terms. And so they're fundamentally opposed. So we live in this world that is, is going in the opposite direction of what we're called to. We live in this reality. And so recognizing that reality and also the, following that verse... Following that verse where he says, sanctify them in the truth, verse 17, he talks about sending his disciples into the world. So we are in the world, we dwell in the world, and we're sent into the world as well. So we dwell in the world, we live in the world, and we're also commissioned to go to the world to proclaim Christ, to witness to him in the world. And so in that context, he says, Father, sanctify these ones. Sanctify my people. Set them apart. That word sanctify, again, not one we use a whole lot. It means set apart for special use. Protect and set them apart for you. And so, so the Savior prays that we would be sanctified and set apart so that the world would not affect us and that when we are in the world, we would not be affected. And when we go to the world with the mission, we would not be affected. Sanctify them by your truth, he says. Your word is truth. God uses his word to sanctify us. If you're a believer and you know you're called to walk with God and you feel the pressure of the world that's all around you, you feel the struggle of sin inside yourself, you feel the pressure of trying to go to the world, your hope for holiness, your hope to remain true to God, ultimately is in Jesus' prayer and His work, but comes through the Word of God. The Word of God is God's truth that sanctifies us, that sets us apart. So if you're trying to do all those things, if you're trying to live in the world and you're not in the Word of God, you're fooling yourself. You need some powerful stuff. I need some powerful stuff to be sanctified, to be set apart. We need to be in the Word of God. The Word of God is like dynamite to sin. It's powerful. When we carry it around in our hearts, it, it is effective and powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit to battle sin. You can't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You can't just have a better attitude. You can't just simply set up habits to avoid sin. Though all those things might be helpful. You need the Word of God in your mind and in your heart. You need to be in the Word, reading the Word, and getting time with God if you are to be sanctified and, and continue to be set apart in Him. Now, ultimately, Jesus is speaking of the Word, the core of the Word, and that is the Gospel, the good news of Christ. Because after He says that, He says, for their sake, I consecrate Myself that they may be sanctified. 
So he says, I set myself apart. I consecrate myself to the work that you've given me. Because he knew ultimately for us to be set apart for God, he had to die for our sins on the cross. He had to pay for your sins to break the power of sin, to break the penalty, pay the penalty of sin, and then rise again to give us new life. And so ultimately, the Word is the Gospel. And so if we want power over sin, get in the truth of the Gospel. Memorize passages. Memorize the book, parts of the book of Romans. There's wonderful truths in Romans. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What a great, what a great verse. That's power. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, gave, who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's power. Psalm, Psalm 119, with good reason, says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then in verse 11 it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Folks, if we want to be pure to the Lord, let us store the word of God in our hearts and meditate and let it have its powerful way. So Jesus prays that we might be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth. He goes on to pray. Throughout this prayer, we see a number of places where he's praying that his people might be one, that you and I and all of God's people might be one. He prays for the unity of God's people. He prays for the unity of God's people and he prays that this unity, this oneness in Christ would reflect His oneness with the Father. Isn't that amazing? The unity He calls us to, the oneness as believers together is to be on par, to be like the unity in the Trinity. That's pretty powerful unity. That's pretty powerful oneness. They are agreed. They are in perfect fellowship together. And he says, because we are one, and as we are one, may they be one. They are ours. They belong to us. May they be one as we are one. He prays that we may be kept and kept together as one. To be kept with the Lord is to be kept with His people. To be kept together. I'll say that again. To be kept with the Lord is to be kept with His people. If we desire to be kept in the Lord, we need to recognize that that is not divorced from God's people. We're to be kept together with His people. That's how He keeps us. That is His mindset. He's not thinking, I want to keep Peggy Buckley to myself. Though He does want that. He's thinking, I want to keep Peggy Buckley to me with this other one and with this other one and with this local church. I keep them as one in me. You see, it's a contradiction to be a people who claim to be one with the Father and the Son and not be one with His people. It's a contradiction. And so that's why Jesus prays, as we are one, Father, may they be one. May they be kept as one. May there be unity. It's an essential characteristic of a Christian to be unified with God's people. And the, and the reverse, or converse, is true, possibly, that if you are not united with God's people, then you may not be a believer. Because you are... If you're one with Him, you're united with Him. And so is every other believer. 
And we're united in the Gospel. We're united in Christ. We're united together with Him. And so if we cannot have a relationship horizontally with other believers, we may not have a relationship vertically. Because this relationship draws us together. The one Gospel, the one God, the one truth, the one experience of God makes for oneness. And I think that oneness has its first application in a local church. And this isn't by way of correction. I'm just going through the text. And certainly I think in our church, we experience a significant unity. And it's to the glory of God. But that unity is to be expressed and experienced in the context of a local church. It is a contradiction and a hypocrisy to have folks who are in a church but you're not united. It's a contradiction to the Gospel. We, we should be united together around the Gospel in the Lord. And an idea that we can live separately, disunited, is just not valid. It's not true. It's not what Jesus prayed for. It's not in line with the unity of the Father. It's a, it's a blight on the glory of God. Now, I don't mean that we agree on every single jot and tittle. But fundamentally, our hearts are for one another. Fundamentally, our hearts are for the Lord. And we're united around the the necessity of the good news of Jesus Christ and His Lordship. And that is powerful, unity-making stuff. In the local church, it should draw us together. So Jesus prays for this. For unity. He also, I believe, prays for the oneness beyond the local church. That the people of God across all denominations and all time would be one. Now, there are some who think that this means there must be institutional unity. And I don't see anything here that says that. Matter of fact, I don't see anything in the New Testament that says unity means institutional. You know what I mean when I say that? We're all, that Jesus wants us all to be in the same denomination or the same group of churches or whatever. That's not there. And the New Testament example is that there are many different churches. And they, are, they are operate somewhat autonomously. They're not all under... One person. Paul's relationship with the church is he doesn't come in saying, I'm the guy here. This is my church. He doesn't. He comes in as a servant. And he respects that local church as an entity. And so there's a degree of autonomy in the churches. Yet there's unity. Because they agree on the Gospel. They agree together. They are committed to one another. So Paul has this whole mission where he goes to the Gentiles and collects money for who? The Jerusalem church to express that oneness, to express the unity of the Gentiles and Jews together. And so the unity beyond the local church is not an institutional, but it's a relational unity around the truth of the Gospel. And so Jesus prays for this. And so we as God's people, if we belong to Him, a sign that we do belong to Him will be our heart for other churches. So just as it's a contradiction to be in a local church and not love one another and not to seek to grow in unity. It's a contradiction to be in a local church and despise another legitimate church. To despise them in any way. We're to love and to seek unity. Because Jesus prayed for this. So He asks that we may be one. Prays for that. And I believe that prayer is answered. I believe, again, it's a measure of a true believer. Unity and a desire for unity. Someone who does not seek unity I think should question Do they belong to the Lord? Because He prayed this. It's answered. And it should show in our lives. And it does. You guys are a wonderful example of this. Both in your heart for one another here 
and in your heart for other churches. I have not, not heard, for the most part, anything that is destructive towards another church, but, but encouraging. So he prays for unity. And another thing, the last part of this, where he prays for his people. Jesus prays for our joy. Jesus prays for our joy. He wants his people to be joyful. Do you see that in verse 13? I think it's 13. Yep. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? Why is Jesus speaking these things? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants us, His people, to have His joy fulfilled in us. He wants us to have fullness of joy in Him. Isn't that amazing? How do we conceive Jesus? of Jesus? Do we think of Jesus as stern and just kind of unhappy? Now, he, could be, he can be stern. I'm not saying he can't, but do we think of him as that? I don't think that's how he's portrayed. He is full of joy. Joy in the Father. Why is he full of joy in the Father? Because he loves the Father. He wants to see the Father glorified. And you know what's happening? The Father is being glorified. The Father is doing wondrous things. The Father has commissioned Jesus and Jesus has finished his work on the cross. And all those that belong to the Father are being one to Him. And He's working. And so His joy is in the glory of the Father. And His joy is full. It's joy inexpressible. It's joy beyond what we can even contain. He is full of joy in the Father and in His plan of redemption. And when He prays this way, that Father, would You do this in Your people? Would You use them in Your mission? There's joy. Because the... Father is doing these things and being glorified and He delights in the Father and He wants you to experience the same joy. To be a believer is to experience joy. That sense that, wow, things are working out for the very best. My future is guaranteed. My future is optimized. There's no better future than what I have as a believer. And the promises of God, God uses all things for good. For those who are in Christ Jesus. All things. All things for good. Even adversity. Even hardship. For good. For your joy. So we must see life like that. That's how Jesus sees life. That's His prayer for us. That we might experience joy. And it's so important that we understand that. That we interpret life that way. Recently, I was before the Lord, and it was this week, and I don't know why, I was just thinking about trials and, and just thinking about how for this side of heaven, life can be marked by trials and suffering. We have people in our midst who are experiencing suffering on a regular basis and trials and temptations. And I think maybe I was morbidly introspective or morbidly obsessed with that reality. And I felt like the Lord brought me correction. And in my time with Him, I felt like He spoke to me, so I wrote down my sense. I want to read that to you because I think this is a truth from what we're talking about that I believe would be helpful. I believe the Lord spoke this way. I did not call you to suffering and trials in and of themselves, but I call you to Me. And in Me, 
is fullness of joy. So much so that when the world would destroy you with its evil and brokenness, you will know victory and even joy. Beware of trial without joy. This is not of me. So know me and know fullness of joy, overcoming joy, hilarious joy, overflowing joy, even today. I call you to joy in the manifold fullness of grace that daily floods your life. Open your eyes to see it. Enjoy it. Proclaim it and be strengthened in it. Know joy. Know me. And live. Now whether that was a valid prophetic word isn't the point. I believe it represents biblical truth. It represents what God calls us to. It represents what Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for our joy in trials and suffering. Life is not about trial and suffering, though life is full of trials and suffering. Life for the believer is about joy in and through trial and suffering. Life with Jesus is about having trials and sufferings, having the rain that falls on the house on the sand and the rock come and fall on you and see you stand on the rock. And see you not only stand and make it through, but even be joyful because you realize your Redeemer lives. And He's working in and through your life. That is the victory. That's what God desires in our lives in trial and suffering is that we shine forth through those to His glory because we experience joy in it because we know we belong to Him and He works all things for good and He's using this trial for good, our good, and His glory. So, all of life is reinterpreted through the Gospel. And joy. So He prays for our joy. That our joy might be full. Whether we have it easy or have it hard, whether we go through a lifelong martyrdom for Him and shine for His glory, or a sudden martyrdom for Him and shine for His glory. Life in Him is for His glory through our joy. So He prays this way. In closing, Jesus prayed for God's mission, for witness. He prayed in this prayer for future believers in verse 20. So He's looking forward through the people of God to the mission of God. He's looking forward to what's going to happen through the witness of the disciples. So He prays for us. We are here because men and women of God have been faithful to proclaim the Word of God. God has used them. God does not think of His people, the purpose of His people and the purpose of mission separately. They go together. To be His people is to be on a mission. It doesn't define every aspect of who we are, but it is a significant purpose of who we are. So the Savior looked at His people and thought of the mission of the people and He prayed for future believers. He prayed for us. And so all that He prayed for God's people applies to us. We are on a mission. We're called to a mission. We're in this world. We're not of the world, but we're sent to the world. We're in the world, not of the world, but sent to the world. And He calls us to that. And so He looks forward to that. He prays for us and all those who will come to Christ through the message. And it's interesting, this prayer is full of His heart to reach others. And one of the most significant things in this prayer, in terms of mission, is... Jesus' prayer for unity among God's people in love. If we want to understand how to witness to Christ biblically, 
Certainly it involves first and foremost the proclamation of the good news. But it also involves the witness of God's people. So we could have the best Bible tracts. We could have the most gifted evangelists. We could have the best programs, the best VBS. But if we don't have a people of God who are united and love one another, there's no witness there. It's all hollow. And so when Jesus thinks of reaching the world, He says, may my people be united. And we know elsewhere in John 13, He says it's through seeing the love one for another. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus knows that the mission is accomplished as we demonstrate love and unity. So He prays this way throughout. So we can have all those things, but if we don't have love and unity, we don't have a witness. And the result of this witness in verse 8 is that the, in verse 21 is that the world would know that Jesus was sent. And it was interesting as I read that, I usually in the past had thought of that as that, that they would know that there's something special going on here. But, but that's, I think it's more than that. Because in this prayer, when he talks about the people of God, he describes them as the ones who know that he was sent of God. So he's talking about believers. He describes believers as the ones who know that Jesus was sent from the Father to us. And so he says he prays for unity and love among God's people that the world may know that he was sent. So what is he praying? He's praying that through the witness of God's people, the world would be converted. That people in the world would come and with God's people, become God's people, and say, yes, indeed, Christ is God, the only Savior and Lord. And so he prays this way in this prayer. If the band could come up as we close. So we see the Savior's great high priestly prayer. He has prayed for our witness. He's prayed for our walk with God. He's prayed for the worship of God. This prayer stands alone as unique in beauty and importance. And for us this morning, it gives us joy and confidence to pray. And it instructs us on how to pray. So let's close and worship this morning, thanking our God for this wonderful prayer, thanking our Savior who has prayed this way and has been answered of the Father. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Lord, we just thank You. We thank You that You've prayed for us and You've prayed these things. We stand secure in You. We, we thank You, Lord. Lord, I pray for joy in our lives. I pray that the things that You've asked for, which are indeed our experience as Your children, I pray these things would be magnified and increased. And I pray, Lord God, as You build us up in You, that the world would see that You were sent of God. You are the only Lord and Savior. So Lord, answer Your own prayer as You work through us for the worship of God, the walk of Your people, and the witness to Your great name we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.